0: Welcome to Neighborly, Steganauts, house number 14, Little Street. Well hello there, dear listener. What a pleasure to have your ears and attention once more. Are you ready to go on an adventure? No? That's okay. We don't have to go anywhere. We can stay here, on Little Street, where it's comfortable and safe, and wait for adventure to come to us. Adventure should be joining us any moment now, and adventure's name is D'Ambrosio. D'Ambrosio is the heart of number 14. The house simply wouldn't be what it is without it. In fact, without it, the house simply does not exist. It is a gaping hole of nothing in the fabric of homeliness that makes up Little Street, for when D'Ambrosia is away, the plot of land left behind is home only to dust, rubble, and a deep gouge in the earth. Its absence is an ugly blot upon the landscape, though not entirely unique, but those stories are yet to come. This story is just beginning, and with its beginning we hear a roar. It's a wonder the neighbors don't complain. And so we look up, 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 craning our necks to the rising sun and the last stars of evening, and there in the heavens, we see a speck. It is an ever-growing speck, and now it is a smudge, and now a silhouette, and the silhouette shows no sign of stopping. The roar becomes an unpleasant whine, and the silhouette pulls into focus. It is beautiful as it falls, aimed at the earth with fury and precision. We can watch it for a little while, the light bouncing off the brass and russet of its hull, and think how lovely it is to know that we are not alone as we hurtle through space. The keel slashes through the dirt, and it spatters against the sails in protest. As it settles into the scar left behind the last time, the wine peters out into blessed silence. Little Street returns to business as usual, save for a gentle hiss of something being released. A figure hops down from the deck and immediately starts fumbling with wires. You wouldn't know how grateful they are to breathe clean air again. The oxygen filter aboard the ship never quite seems to soak up all the sweat after the first few thousand cycles. From a bird's eye view, the path the figure stumbles becomes a circuit which finally connects at the front fence posts. At first, nothing happens. Then the figure swears and kicks an oddly metallic tree stump, and the hologram sputters to life. If you look at it at just the right moment, at just the right angle, it's a perfectly normal facade. Stand directly opposite, and what you would see is almost precisely a child's depiction of a house made solid. A rough rectangle with a window in each corner and a door solidly in the middle. It also has a small step, so I suppose the imaginary child who we pretend designed this façade has an overdeveloped sense of architecture. Good for them. Not so good for them is that this delectively mundane and solid front is, in fact, two-dimensional. But we all have to live with disappointment. Besides, the Stegonauts are not the type to settle, so a house of brick and mortar would be hardly appropriate. If you're wondering what the point of the semi-solid projection is, you would have a point. After all, they don't leave it behind when they take flight, and the residents of Little Street aren't so stupid that they don't notice the gaps that keeps appearing and disappearing. I suppose the steganauts are very lucky to have landed on a street that simply doesn't care. All good pirates know it is best to go unnoticed by galactic law enforcement, and it turns out that Little Street makes for an excellent Bermuda Triangle in which to lay low and offload their latest hauls. It is with this in mind, then, that I introduce you to our wonderful quartermaster. It is their job to run through the hold after every trip, and they are very, very good at what they do. Their list is never wrong. That would mean that they had done their job wrong and they would never stoop to the level of making something like a mistake. Each item on the ship is marked and checked three times a day in order to ensure it's safe passes across the galaxy. And that isn't even counting all the times that bumping into things like asteroid debris and cannon fire triggers an immediate recount for the sake of accuracy. It's a very precise list, and the Quartermaster likes it that way. Nothing is ever unaccounted for. Nothing is ever missing. When the quartermaster arrives in the hold with the deckhand trailing behind, they begin the task of checking off each item in the hold. They dig through crates, count ammunition, report the exact amount of blast powder left in the stacks of metal barrels pushed against the wall. They carefully sift through the boxes of preserved rations, calling the numbers and positions aloud as they count for the deckhand to quickly scrawl down. Ten boxes of twenty-five basic ration kits. Seventeen boxes of fifteen apples, one open and containing only nine. The repair supplies are next, and those tend to give the quartermaster some trouble. With how often they recount the scraps and tools and screws and bolts and nails stowed away in perfectly organized crates, it isn't a lot of trouble. But even they must admit that there is some. Each screw must be counted, each bolt secured in the appropriate sectioned-off pocket, Every nut checked again and again until each small piece is catalogued and recorded. No, nothing is ever unaccounted for in this ship. Nothing is ever missing. So when the quartermaster checks the medical supplies to find the captains of education and realizes it happens to be missing, they know that something isn't right. Deckhand? The deckhand's knuckles drop from his eye to his pocket, where he tries to look alert. Typical. Check the medicine category, six rows down. Captain's pill bottles, the quartermaster snaps. Should be one left by the first aid kids, Q, he says. The quartermaster checks again, shoving down their bubbling irritation. Nothing could be missed. No mistakes would be made out of anger. Still, nothing. Let me see that list. They demanded haughtily, snatching the list from their subordinate and scanning it with greedy eyes. Sure enough, on the sixth row down, in the deckhand's scroll writing, it reads, One container, fifty-two pills. Asterisk for the captain. The quartermaster allows themselves a huff of anger and shakes their head. I'll finish here, and you best go see to it that the captain knows. They continue their counting. Bandages next. Where were they? Ah. Yes. Four boxes. Ten inside three. Four inside one. Perfect. Not perfect, actually. Something is just not... right. That damn pill bottle. Moving along. Allosynthesine. Useful for burns and minor injuries. God knows they had enough of those happening with the twins. It takes longer, meticulously ticking each item off the list by their own hand. But eventually they make it to the end of the row. The quartermaster begins to make their way over to the other side of the ship when the sound of a door slamming shut echoes through the corridor. They squint down the dimly lit passage to the right. Did you find the captain? There was no response. Perhaps the skittering young man had forgotten to ask. Perhaps he had gone off to ask properly. Perhaps it was another member of the crew, walking in to get something but forgetting something else. A backtrack. Nothing more. The Quartermaster heaves a long sigh and continues their work. After all, they mustn't make mistakes. Even if that means ignoring the icy prickle down their spine, as they wait to hear the resolution of those thrice-bedeviled pills. footsteps that make their way down the angled plank off the Dambrosia are steady, though uneven. The heavier foot thumps along next to its quieter counterpart as Captain Aloysius Hildegard makes his way off their beloved ship and onto the trodden grass that makes up the ground of House Number 14. He breathes deeply, takes a long moment to appreciate the clear, natural air, and then looks down at his foot. Solid ground, my friend! he announces, giving his foot a testing wiggle and chuckling when the action gains him a warbling squawk in response. The creature clinging to his calf is some sort of feathered reptile, plumage in tones of purples and blues with soft speckles of white that make her look like the night sky itself. She is beautiful and, though flightless, loves to be in the air. She also loves to be on the ground. What she doesn't like so much is the in-between, Take-off and landings often find her attaching herself to Aloysius in the most secure manner. A few moments pass, and she doesn't move from her spot. The captain's voice is understanding but firm, as he admonishes her for her lack of action, with the simple call of her name. Zarin? Zarin trills out a noise, touches a clawed foot to the ground, and then scampers off to reintroduce herself to the planet. It is routine for the captain to treat his crew to an earthly breakfast once they are situated on Little Street once more, and so, after watching Saren disappear, he himself heads away from D'Ambrosio. Hooking a thumb into his belt as he slips around the facade of number 14, Aloysius starts down the road, the quiet tune of a shanty whistling past his lips as he goes. He is only a few verses in, the lyrics floating around in his mind, when he notes someone walking towards him. Dr. Ripner, the captain calls out a greeting and offers a slight wave, smiling happily when it was returned his way. Just the man I wanted to see. He explains that his last prescription has gone missing, a strange occurrence given the rigor with which his quartermaster keeps stock of the ship and its possessions. He's just glad they absconded the day they returned home. It's not exactly easy to arrange an emergency prescription when sailing through the depths of space, after all. A suitable payment for the doctor is already playing in his mind. A small collection of stones from a distant planet, carved into a fun array of things. He had spotted the toy soldier first as he and his crew wandered around the alien market. Barely two inches tall, a little soldier with its curled moustache and lopsided hat stood saluting on the edge of a stall. As he'd approached, he noted the angular wings of the figure behind it, along with a top-hatted person wielding some sort of stringed instrument. The full collection of figurines came together to form a merry little band of mismatched pirates, reminding him so fondly of his own crew. Aloysius had promptly snatched them up and traded them for a small clattering bundle of old earth coins. Dr. Ripner offers him a time to pop by later on in the day and he accepts eagerly, shaking the doctor's hand with his own metal one and promising to see him soon. With that sorted, he heads off to secure his crew their well-deserved breakfast, Shanti slipping quietly past his lips once more. Back on D'Ambrosio, a rather tall figure in a rather nondescript trench coat patiently waits behind an airlock, as the pressurized cabin equalizes with the outside air. As said airlock finally opens, the figure lurches forward, and a soft giggling can be heard from beneath the layer of fabric that obscures part of the face as the figure rights itself. There's a quiet beep and a hiss from the now unsealed door, and the figure bounces on their heels as it slides open. As soon as the sun streams in, the trench coat wriggles and writhes as the figure excitedly stumbles out into the day. Oh, how wonderful this planet is! Oh, how beautiful the clouds are! One of the arms of the coat lifts towards the sky, and the sleeve falls down quite a ways to reveal a small hand feeling the breeze through jittery fingers. They give another laugh, and a huff from slightly below where the belly button should be. How curious! The trench-clad coat character makes their way up to the top deck, skirting around the busy crew members and saying hello to whoever they pass by. With each announcement, an echo seems to follow, as if two voices are announcing the words. As the figure stumbles around the deck, their movements are tilted and strange. They lean this way and that, and occasionally they seem to nearly fall over. Each time, a series of giggles can be heard as the figure rights themselves again and continues on. They approach a series of ropes and pulleys, and two hands shoot out the body of the coat and secure a loose line. The arms and the sleeves stretch up to the ropes the other hands cannot reach and pull them taut. The figure then makes its way over to a net hanging from the rigging, and the coat is quickly discarded as the top half of the figure climbs it. The bottom half of the figure huffs, throwing aside the pile of fabric and climbing after his brother. Two identical boys nudge each other as they climb. They begin to sing a song, both of them know well, and their voices meld together easily as they always have. The tune itself is familiar, having been on the captain's lips ever since they made landfall this beautiful morning. Their brothers have warbled chanty since they were young. They sang as soon as they could speak. They are some of the youngest on the ship, but they've been steganots all their lives. Beloved sons of the stars are they, children who first saw Earth with rosy cheeks pressed against the glass of portal. The younger smiles as they heave the sail up one last time, letting his brother tie the intricate knot that will keep the canvas secured for the extent of their stay on Little Street. Although mere minutes separate the two in age, he is more than content to use his youth as an excuse to let his mind wander now that a task has been finished. He pushes himself to his feet, balancing on the yard like he's done hundreds of times before. The wind whips through his shaggy curls as he scans the area. Off the port side of the ship, he watches, in awe, as what was before a Victorian-style mansion slowly morphs into a temple of gleaming white marble but it doesn't hold his attention for very long, as he occupies himself with gazing up at the sky He spent his whole life exploring. He's just about to get back to work when, oh, what's this? He sees something moving on the main mast just out of the corner of his eye, up up in the crow's nest. It is a formless thing as far as he can tell, An inky blob slinks behind the railing and is gone as quickly as it came. He stares at the space where he thought it was, puzzled, looking down the mast for anyone climbing away. There is no one there, but when his eyes return to the crow's nest they are met with another set staring right back. The freezing chill of space fills the boy's lungs as he is paralyzed, unable to look anywhere but those eyes, the eyes staring at him, and into him, and through him. The eyes are his lonesome nightmares, they are the endless void of space, they contain the entirety of nothingness. As an adult, there is a certain luxury in the idea of knowledge. Any of those terrors too elusive to name are explained away by what is believed to be rational thought, what is believed to be maturity and experience. As a child, one is not afforded such ignorant understanding. He tries, feebly, to wrap his mind around what he could not possibly comprehend, and that proves to be his downfall. Quite literally. There is a scream of true horror, and he is falling, his balance on the wooden pole beneath corrupted by the vision that has upset his foundations. Hope always appears when we least expect it. Now it shows itself in the form of a hand on his. The eldest of the two is there. Having rushed over and quickly caught his counterpart by the arm, he heaves the younger back onto the yard, and for a moment... Their laboured breaths are the only sound besides the warm breeze that surrounds them. Then he pulls his little brother into a gentle embrace, running his fingers casually through the other's messy hair. He attempts to comfort his twin in the best way he knows how. A shanty as old as sky sailing itself. The calling card of D'Ambrosio, one of the first tunes they ever learned. There's darkness in the grey beyond, he sings. Void with which we formed a bond. The younger lets out a little laugh against his shoulder and pulls back so that their identical eyes can meet. They're familiar, a golden hazel that he sees in the mirror each morning, golden like the stars they sail through, that make him forget his worries entirely. After all, family is the closest thing to coming home he's ever known. He responds to his brother in kind, continuing the verse. We cry out and let space respond Afar the stars awaiting The pair rise, holding onto the rigging for support, and start to nimbly maneuver their way down from the foremast. As they do, their joyful voices ring out down Little Street. And though there is the faintest glow Of something terrible down below We cannot fear what we do not know A the stars
1: awaiting waiting
0: The twins are not the only ones noticing some peculiar happenings aboard the ship. Back in his quarters, the captain leans casually against the large map table in the centre of the cabin, crossing his arms. He carries quite a solemn look. "'Have you noticed anything... off?' he inquires. The quartermaster nods shortly and explains their experience in the hold. It would, of course, be alright in the long run, but Run had to question the strange disappearance of supplies. Captain Aloysius gives them a resigned look and quickly sifts through information he has received from the other crew members. A pair of eyes peering down from the crow's nest that the twins had nervously described to him. The quartermaster interrogating the crew on the occasional missing food. The deckhand had, a few weeks ago, reported an odd moaning sound throughout the crew's quarters during their designated sleeping time. It was quickly passed off as something wrong with the vent. The ventilation itself was of interest to the captain soon after that when he heard something within them whisper to him. There is someone, or something, on his ship, and he wants it gone. The quartermaster is to employ the help of all hands on D'Ambrosio, and everyone must keep their eyes peeled for- Ah! Oh, well, this is fascinating. The captain swivels his head towards his map table. A young man looks back at him from atop it. It takes less than a second for the captain to jump forward, grabbing him by the shirt collars and pulling him off the table. Uh... Hello, Captain Aloysius draws the unfamiliar man close, glaring at him suspiciously and making the man shrink under his gaze. What, the, what are you gonna do to me? The man stutters, and the captain sends the quartermaster out of the room with a short jerk of his head. Up on the main deck, a select few members from Captain Aloysius's ragtag crew huddle beside the door to his quarters, a buzz with excited whispers. Each of them knows that when the captain calls them all to meet, it is not to be taken lightly. The stoic look on the quartermaster's face would seem familiar, but the deckhand, having spent so much of his time around them, knows better than to assume their impartiality. He decides to fixate his gaze on the door directly beside his superior, tracing his eyes along the wood grains and clutching his hands to keep them from ringing. Suddenly, said door swings open, revealing the captain on the other side. The quartermaster motions quickly for the crew to enter, muttering a small scolding as they walk by. The unusually tall person in the trench coat shakes their head and ducks under the doorway. The deckhand trails behind, flushed and nervous. Once each of them are situated, the captain draws their attention to the man sitting on the side of the room, the man who had previously fallen from the ceiling. He is not there by choice, made obvious by the fact that his arms and legs are bound to an uncomfortable wooden chair. He gives each crewmate a wary look. "'What's this?' a voice from the middle of the trench court dares to ask. "'Who is he? Is he from the neighborhood?" The captain's gaze shoots to the startled stowaway, who attempts to shrug his shoulders. It's quite awkward to do so. So, to clarify, he shakes his head. "'I'm just Dave!' he blurts, his eyes flicking around the room wildly. "'I don't mean any harm.' Both of the twins erupt in questions. Meanwhile, the deckhand shakes his hands to get some of his nerves to calm. The captain quiets everyone quickly, focusing his attention onto their current problem. He inquires about how long the man has been there, and where he's managed to hide for so long that no one has previously seen him. Surely, Captain Aloysius gruffly asserts, he had been the one causing all of the disturbances around the ship. Dave remains shell-shocked, so the quartermaster steps in. I ran into him in the hold, I believe, earlier today, they add smugly. It's nice to put a face to the fellow who's been causing so much trouble. The others take the end of the captain's line of interrogation as an invitation. More questions fly around that room. Was that you who put a hand on my shoulder in the night? Was that you who shattered one of the porthole windows, letting in the chilling air? Was it your eyes I felt on my back as I worked? Dave Stammers, attempting to get a word in edgewise, but he is always interrupted, always spoken over, always ignored. After what feels like hours, but was most likely only a few seconds, The captain's stern tone calls for order. The others in the room share several glances, nodding to confirm the credibility of each of their stories. In a space so tense one could feel the electricity rippling off each person within, someone breaks the current. Was that you who was up in the crow's nest? inquires the younger twin, who tugs at the two long sleeves of the coat that he and his brother share. His voice is softer than usual, tinged with fear. Dave Cox's head, appearing confused. Far too confused for someone intentionally interfering with the crew of D'Ambrosio. Finally, in the moment of quiet, he speaks up in his defense. I I may have taken some rations from the hold. I needed food, but I never dared to open a window, even when the ship got too warm. He receives some disbelieving looks, but keeps rambling on, getting incredibly flustered. A, a hand on your shoulder? I have no idea about that. I tried to stay away from you all. And and see, I would never go into the crow's nest. I'm terrified of heights. His eyes reveal nothing but truth, and as the words sink in, an unsettling silence falls over the crew. The attention of those most dedicated to Dambrosio is so drawn by their small, mundane mysteries they aren't even thinking about what might lie waiting for them elsewhere. I can't blame them. It's not their fault they haven't gotten to inspecting the rest of the ship yet. After all, uncertainty is a great evil. (laughs) She is a gorgeous ship, worn by time maybe, but she serves her purpose with grace and perseverance. Intricately carved wood mingles with shining, somewhat scuffed metal to create a vessel that sails amongst galaxies with its Jolly Roger proudly flying in the vacuum of space. What a beautiful designs her hull carries indeed. There are so many leviathans hewn of wood tangling up in each other that I can hardly tell where one ends and another begins. It would certainly be easy to miss that a few of their mahogany eyes are opening to reveal an all-seeing void. There are hardships to the journeys D'Ambrosio makes. Instead of fathoms below, she faces fathoms all-consuming, ever surrounded by an imposing nothingness. It crushes as much as it pulls, leaves one lonely as much as it surrounds them with unimaginable masses of lifetimes. And of course, with exploring such vast forbidden lands, there comes with an associated risk. Night is falling over Little Street, dear listener. But there is no darkness to hide what creeps up the sides of the ship lying behind a hologram house. The blue glow of the projection kisses tendrils of inky blackness that seep out of the very wood of an ambrosio. Under the careful watch of Earth's moon and those gaseous giants both dead and alive, something threatens to take back whatever secrets the crew has dared to search for in the great beyond. Something wishes for penance. It gazes down and around and through and cries to be satiated. Afar, the stars are waiting. And they are hungry. Neighbourly is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Today's house was written by A.L. Withington, Andrew Mercator, Emily Loris and J.R. Steele and edited by Matthew O.K. Smith, with music by Alex Schwartz and Emily Loris, and art by Cloudy Apple Art. The narrator is voiced by Matthew O.K. Smith. To find out more, visit neighborlypod.card.co or follow us on social media at neighborlypod. If you enjoyed listening today, information on how you can support us will be included in the episode description. Most of all, we would appreciate it if you told a friend, because they might tell a friend, and they might tell a friend, and who knows? Eventually, God might finally listen to us, Today's Cognitive Phenomenon is Déjà Vu. Thanks for listening. Come back soon.
1: Companions brave and bolder rise Heek up your swords and turn your eyes their celestial treasure lies Afar, the stars are waiting We Stegonauts have heard the call This starship has us in its throat And names a voice within us all Afar, far the stars are waiting Let us sail to another world With engines flaring and sails unfurled Bring my crew to the galaxy's edge And back Back again. again Sail a smile when skies are red In evening's glow we sail instead To what's beyond the clouds ahead Afar the stars are waiting the solar systems to explore With harrowing journeys left in store We go where none have gone before Afar sail to another world with, with engines flaring and sails unfurled bring my crew to the galaxy's edge and back again, again. we lay ourselves to sleep at night and pray the air looks sealed up tight for we have one in goal in our sight how far the stars are waiting Tell our loves a fond farewell, and years from now, the bards as well will share the stories that we tell of afar the stars are waiting. Let us sail to another world with engines flaring and sails unfurled. Bring my crew to the galaxy's edge and back again. Darkness in the great beyond That void with which we formed a bond We cry out and let space respond Afar the stars are waiting And though there is the faintest glow Of something terrible down below We We cannot cannot fear fear what we do do not know Afar the stars are waiting Let us sail to another world With engines flaring and sails unfurled Bringing my crew to the galaxy's edge and back again Let us sail to another world With engines flaring and sails unfurled Bringing my crew to the galaxy's edge and back again